Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 193, in theory. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. John Champion is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Um, thank you, first of all, but uh, we're not doing that anymore. Doing what? Never mind. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the unknown explored by an episode of Star Trek, casting a light in its darkness, or sometimes just blowing it up. Blowing it up real good. This week, in theory, the one where Data learns he's got a lot to learn about love. In a moment, I'll be bringing you trivia, in theory, but first. But first. Got a question or comment for us? Seeking advice for the love learn? All of that and more is just a few modes of communication away. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, maybe make a long-distance dedication, our number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Please, though, remember, we can't play every request. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, time for trivia with Dr. Love. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you, Ken. Today's episode, In Theory, was written by Joe Minoski and Ronald D. Moore. And uh, by the way, just to get this out up front, they hated the B-plot. The B-plot. Which one's the B-plot? Well, See, so, okay, good question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, all the sciencey stuff, these subspace anomalies, they thought they were just writing a nice little ram- romantic story mm-hmm. about data. And in fact, the early title of this episode was Breaking Up is Hard to Do, which, come to think of it, could also apply to the B-plot about subspace anomalies. But, I don't know, though. Mm-hmm. Breaking Up was pretty easy in this episode. <laughs> for, for that, yeah. For the subspace thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And today's episode was directed by, uh, let's see if I got this right, Patrick Stewart. Oh, Patrick Stewart is the name. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Anyway, you look him up on IMDb while I'm uh, finishing this, all right? Let me know what else he's done. Um, Yes, it's another one of those actors learning directing while on Star Trek. Kind of a cool little thing they've got going there. Um, This is his first professional directing job, and he will go on to lead four more episodes of The Next Generation. And honestly, not that much more directing after that. Uh, Just one other credit other than five total episodes of Star Trek. He has said, though, that he has a soft spot in his heart for this episode. It was his first, after all. And uh, he liked the idea of doing a romantic storyline. And he was very much at ease directing Brent Spiner because that guy is a pro. Now, let's talk about some of the effects in this episode. We have a reuse of the Matara Nebula effects from the Wrath of Khan. We also have a reuse of the Photon Torpedo prop, slightly modified for the next generation. And we see it on a new set, though, uh, the Photon Torpedo launch area. Very nice build on that. Um, That little detail of the Book of Shakespeare that is always in Picard's ready room. This time, it's open up to a page from Love's Labor's Lost. And uh, let's also mention that the opening music number in Act 1 is the Woodwind Quintet in E-flat by Czech composer Anton Reicha. Now, Ken, you and our listeners know that sometimes I like to pull out the research notes on the script. So that's always fun. The script goes out to a couple of different research agencies, and they send back their notes either on copyrighted material or character names. So here's what came back, the highlights of what came back for this episode. We did have a few other crew names that were mentioned uh, that were all cleared by research. But one of the things that I found interesting was that among the other names of people that weren't used in this episode, we actually had a last name for Jeff, Jess's ex-boyfriend. He was to be Jeff Arden. Wait, and Jenna's, mm-hmm. Jenna's ex-boyfriend, right? Jenna. Oh, I, you said I, Jess. I, Doesn't matter. I mean, I, I'm just making sure. Oh, that was that yet another character about no, which no, we no, hadn't no, heard? No. And now there they. All right, so Jeff and Jenna, 
Not Art, because yes. they're not getting married, plus he's not important enough to have a last name. Not anymore, he's not. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right. And we had many more references throughout to romantic stories. Just to name check a few here, we got Catherine and Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, Caesar and Cleopatra from, you know, history, but also referencing Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra. We had uh, Petruchio and Catherine from The Taming of the Shrew. And uh, there would have actually been a line in this one of these days, Jenna, one of these days as a moment lifted from the honeymooners. And uh, research had determined that it was (laughs) enough in the popular language by then. So no need for a copyright concern there. Uh, I got mm-hmm. to applaud them, though, for taking out the part where the android is threatening to hit his human girlfriend. I'm glad they didn't leave that in yeah, there. Yeah, that's yes. kind of, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they live in space. Maybe he actually was saying, I will take you to the moon. Yeah, like literally to the moon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To yeah. the moon, Jenna. We'll go because mm-hmm. they got a great place there now. Yeah, generally speaking, though, that was they could get a place on Lake Armstrong, maybe. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, they, Data could enjoy that. Yes, uh, you know, Jenna, not so much, at least not for very long. Um, there are references to earlier uh, uh, technologies and references from Star Trek, things like time travel and, of course, transparent aluminum, M-class planets, etc. that all fit within Trek continuity. Uh, and there is, according to research, no proprietary listing for Targ milk. So I guess that one is still available. No problem. And uh, let's talk about guest stars. We have an uncredited Georgina Shore as Lieutenant Van Mater. Uh, She actually has been in Star Trek twice before. There will be no more of Lieutenant Van Mater, I'm sorry to say. Uh, But you can also see her in Hell Comes to Frogtown, if you're looking for that title on VHS. Uh, We have Pamela Winslow as Ensign McKnight. We first met her in the episode Clues. Good to see a returning character in a small role. And finally, we have Jenna DeSora, played by Michelle Scarabelli. Now, Michelle is from Canada. She got her start in a handful of B-movies and quickly started appearing in TV guest roles in the 80s. She shows up as a regular in Airwolf as Joe Santini. She's on Dallas, Jake and the Fat Man. After Star Trek, she shows up on TV as well as in movies like the parody 2001 A Space Travesty, Shattered Glass, which starred Star Wars' Hayden Christensen as Stephen Glass. Of course, though... Michelle is best known for playing Susan Francisco in the TV series Alien Nation, which then led to more appearances in the Alien Nation TV movies. Her husband in that show, George Francisco, was played by Eric Pierpoint, who also has his own upcoming Star Trek guest appearances and will also meet another Alien Nation co-star of theirs, Gary Graham, in Star Trek Yet to Come. Love, Enterprise Style. Truer than the red, gold, and blue. Love, Enterprise Style. That is Jenna and Ada. Prologue. The Enterprise pulls up alongside a beautiful nebula, the Mar Oscura. In the photon torpedo bay, Data and Lieutenant Jenna DeSora are modifying a torpedo to use in a scientific experiment in the nebula. Something about dark matter... But Jenna is preoccupied since her ex-boyfriend bumped into her and asked her out to dinner. And she really wants the kind of love that won't hurt anymore. Data has heard this kind of thing before, and they had a little agreement going. If Jenna thought about going out with Jeff again, Data would remind her of all the reasons they split up in the first place. He does, and she listens because, you know, they're friends like that. With the torpedo away, the nebula lights up, and Data and Jenna are there to watch the fireworks on the monitor. For Jenna, though, sharing fireworks with Data means something more. It's the metaphor to drag us right up to the opening credits. Act 1. Open on a delightful concert. A quintet are kicking out the jams of 1820 to an adoring crowd. Jenna's not too happy with her own performance, but she's got fellow musician Data there to reassure her that she's doing great. It also probably smarts a little since she sees Keiko from their band leave the stage to the adoring smile of her husband, Miles O'Brien. Later in 10 Forward, Miles and Keiko good-naturedly rib each other in the way couples do. Across the table, Jenna is mimicking a bit of that behavior herself with Data. The drinks are flowing, she's moving in closer to share amusing anecdotes and squeeze Data's arm. 
Nebula business is going along just fine. All sorts of things to explore, like some class and planets, which may be really interesting since life could have developed in some very odd ways here. Data and Jenna are back to working on another photon torpedo. She's getting dreamy, thinking about old times of family and wishes she were back there. More to the point, she wishes she were in a fun, carefree place with Data, but he's not getting the hint reminding her that time travel to the past is impossible regardless of what she may have heard about a former crew of the Enterprise. She thinks he's just great, funny, a caring friend, encouraging, kind. With Data not getting the hint, Jenna excuses herself, but before she leaves, she gives him a kiss, followed by a compliment on his being handsome, followed by a bit of a longer kiss on the lips because she's got her mind on a new romance. Act 2. When things get questionable, there's one place to go, and Data goes there to tend forward to consult with Guinan. She's mixing a new drink, but Data is preoccupied with the fact that he just got snogged in the torpedo bay. Guinan's a good listener, of course, and she basically tells him to search his feelings. On his way back to his quarters, Data is interrupted by Jordy LaForge holding Data's cat, Spot. Somehow the cat got out, even though there's no way he could have... Weird, but never mind. Data has more important questions for his friend, like should he date Jenna? Jordy is not too cool about rebound relationships, but maybe she's ready, but but maybe she's not. But well, by that point, Jordy realizes he is totally the wrong guy to be giving dating advice to anyone. Deanna Troy is a good choice. She's urging caution that Data might break her heart, seeing as how she has emotions and he, well, he doesn't. He's been studying literature about life's sweetest reward, but he may need to go beyond his programming to make this work. Worf isn't much help. In typical Klingon fashion, it starts to sound a little kinky, then threatening. On to Riker, who gives about the most Riker answer possible. Yeah, she's hot. Go for it before I do. Then on to Picard, and Picard is not interested. So it's up to Data, and he decides to give it a go. He shows up at Jenna's place with a bouquet of flowers. She is delighted. She's not so delighted that Data has been blabbing to the crew about his and her personal lives. In a moment, Data tries to set a romantic mood. The lights dim. He tries to get cozy on the couch. She's intrigued, a bit more receptive, if hesitant, and is concerned only that this relationship may just be so much programming on his part. But he reassures her. The program is written just for her. She is the most important part of it. Yeah, who are we kidding? He had her at subroutine, and they kiss before heading to commercial. Act 3, back to the job at hand. The Enterprise is on course for one of those Class M planets, and Picard retires to his ready room. Strangely, his computer, teacup, and other ephemera have fallen to the floor through his desk. No holes to be seen, no foul play... Picard calls Worf, and neither of them can quite solve the mystery. Worf is ready to probably shoot whomever is responsible, but Picard just asks him to be cautious of anything weird. Data is painting at his quarters when Jenna shows up. She's got a gift, an acrylic sculpture sort of thing, which Data gladly accepts after giving it a critical analysis. She's a little chagrined and offhandedly remarks that he should go back to painting, which he does, which is the wrong thing to do. She's trying to get Data to be a little more sensitive to her presence, and, yeah, the present. He clues in, finding a place to display the gift, then awkwardly resumes painting at her insistence. Quarrel averted, love is still exciting and new, but as Jenna leaves, she fails to notice that the bulkhead behind her temporarily phases out, revealing the conduits underneath. Back to the bridge for a moment. Arriving somewhere deep in the Mara Oscura Nebula, Riker informs the captain that there is no Class M planet where there should be one. Act 4. Yep, still no planet. Except for the one that is now in front of them. But no time to worry about it, since the Enterprise computer is warning of an atmospheric breach in the observation lounge. Good thing nobody was in there. It's kind of like a subspace distortion that opened up the windows and made a mess in there. No human could stack chairs like that. Returned to a portrait of romantic bliss, Data comes back home to Jenna's quarters. There's quick small talk about work, and then Data starts laying it on thick, real thick. 
He's been modifying his program, and data doesn't seem like data, really. He's smarmy, he's cheesy, he's got some rehearsed lines. Jenna is confused, if a little amused at first, but he keeps going. The lines are weird, and it's just not him. Data then shoots back with some verbal attacks from way out of left field, trying to instigate a lover's quarrel as if that is something they need to experience. She steers him away, they make it up with a kiss, but the kiss is a little cold. When Jenna asked what he was thinking at the moment, Data's positronic brain was working overtime on a bunch of different projects. A slice of that was for Jenna, but she kind of realizes now that he's an android. He's not going to be able to feel for her the way she feels for him. Back to the bridge. There's more weird stuff happening on the ship, incidents being reported from all over. Fortunately, no casualties. It's got something to do with subspace anomalies, but whatever that is, it's putting the ship at risk. Picard just wants to get out of there, but before anyone can make that so, Data's console starts to wink out and then back in. If that's not bad enough, there's decompression on Deck 37. Then in engineering, a control panel nearly shocks a man to death. The worst of the damage is between Decks 36 and 37. Jordy and a couple of others, Van Mater and Thorne, go to check it out. Yeah, I just named them, but don't get attached. Because before you can even spell Van Mater, we hear her scream, leading Jordy and Thorne to find her body embedded in the floor from the waist down. Act 5. Sorry about Van Mater. I told you not to get attached, but now we know what's going on. There is so much dark matter in this nebula that the normal fabric of space is disrupted. These disruptions pass through the Enterprise, causing physical tears and making parts of it wink out and then back into existence. Data can detect the anomalies at very close range, but the Enterprise is too big to navigate around them. It is decided that a shuttlecraft will lead in front, and its maneuvers will be copied back to the Enterprise. And just to make it super dramatic, Picard will pilot that shuttle going right over Riker's objections. The course is laid in, the engines are fired up, and Picard takes the wheel while the screen in front of him shows all the distortions he is avoiding. The Enterprise is right in tow, and it's all going perfectly according to plan until it doesn't. Picard's shuttle grazes one of those distortions, which knocks out a nacelle. He's able to hold on well enough by increasing his distance to the Enterprise, but at a certain point, the shuttle is too hard to control, and it careens head-on to a distortion. O'Brien is at the transporter control just in the nick of time to beam Picard back to the Enterprise. Close enough to the edge, we give the Enterprise some gas and create a safe distance from the nebula. Time to head to a starbase for repairs. At home in his quarters, Data is setting the mood for a date with Jenna. When she arrives, she's a little distracted. He's ready to start dinner, but then she says those dreaded words, I think we should talk. For Jenna, this is just not working out. She broke up with Jeff because he was unemotional, and then she jumped into a relationship with an android. Not figuratively, literally. So she can't even. And Data doesn't really get it. He's ready for dinner, but Jenna just doesn't feel like hanging around. He asks if they're no longer a couple, and Jenna tells Data that sadly, they are not. In that case, he will delete the program he created for their relationship, then sit still, in mood lighting, holding his cat. The end. Man, life's going to suck for Jenna for a bit, huh? No kidding. Yeah, because she's got to go to work bad. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. there, and he's forgotten everything. I mean, he'll know it, but he doesn't have, well, of course he doesn't have feelings anyway. <laughs> but he doesn't yeah. even have the subroutine anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. But she's Wait, got it, it, all the yeah. subroutines. All of them. Still. Yeah. The, this is like a sunshine of the spotless mind thing going yes. on here. Yeah. It, it is um, a bit, yes. Or it's like, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, well, for data anyway, it's like uh, Dr. Tristan Adams turned on the Tantalus device. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just wiped that card out. Just took that straight out of there. Or it's like he was uh, kidnapped by Romulans. Right, exactly like that. Or or it's like Beverly turned on that part of the machine that makes people, you know, lose short-term memory. Yeah, yeah. All kinds mm-hmm. of things from past episodes of Star Trek. See, Star Trek isn't the only one that can reference past episodes of Star Trek. Right. We can do it, too. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, well, you know, fortunately, I, I hope we really follow up with Jenna to mm. find out how she's doing. Yeah, I, I really, looking. you know, I got very emotionally invested in her story. I'm really hoping that she and Jeff are able to work it out, because there's got to be a reason that those two kids keep getting back together. 
I hope so, too. And, you know, she's going to go back to him and go like, wow, I was wrong about you being unemotional. Boy, are you emotionally available to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about where I've been. But I, I hate to keep hitting the same note on the head here, but I, seriously, ever since somebody brought it up to me in that college class uh, that, that I was a, a guest in about Star Trek, I'm really starting to notice the pop culture thing on board. It's more classical music this time. It's all stuffy, quiet. It is, is very, you know, bourgeois. And I'm just waiting for someone just once to ask the computer to play the Who Live at Leeds. Mm. You know why? Because you want to know what I did? I watched this episode probably four or five times before today, before recording. And at one point, I stopped after that moment in Act One, and I put on the Who Live at Leeds because ah. I needed to break it up. Uh, so long live the ox, long live moon. Um, yeah. I don't. That's, here's the thing. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, does nobody play rock music in the 24th century? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's all classical, or in, in the case of Riker, it can be Dixieland. Right, right. But he's a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> well, he is <laughs> an know. anomaly. I mean, he is definitely. He is. Yeah, although maybe that's part of his charm. Like, women are like, wow, I've never heard such radical music as Dixieland yeah. jazz. So, you know, I'm there. <laughs> There's something about it that's just very white bread and very kind of boring but here's the thing here's the thing i get it there is something that star trek is telegraphing to the audience about this very evolved high-minded very well-cultured group of people who are in star fleet so i Mm. I get that there's also a production reason for this which i totally understand and that's that you want to use music that is public domain right you don't have to pay for it yeah. No, I mean, I, so if you were a kid in the 80s like I was and you watched Miami Vice and you were like, wow, this is amazing music and that it took forever for them to release that on DVD even because they had to go back and get all those music rights. Um, <laughs> and then and then if you watched a show like uh, Knight Rider, which they didn't actually get the rights to the pop music they were playing. So what they did is they would get half the rights and they would re-record it. And even as a 12-year-old, I could sit there and go, that's not the original version of that song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like when you find something on iTunes or Amazon these days that the legal rights aren't there. Yeah. So it'll be like something in the style of. Or, you know, recorded mm-hmm. by some band you've never heard of that sounds almost like the song you're looking for, but not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah, right. So you got the more evolved society and all that stuff. And also props to them for not trying to make up rock bands from the 80s. No, no, because it, it does sound very sound dated. Like garbage, yeah. It, it does sound very dated. Well, not garbage. Garbage is an awesome band. Well, they didn't come out to the 90s, though. So you That's see the problem. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always think about the episode of uh, Buck Rogers' Space Rockers. Uh, because immediately, immediately when you do an episode where you say this is really cool music, mm-hmm. like you give it about 10 minutes after the episode is aired and then you think, wow, that was terrible. <laughs> and, and there's no way that's cool now or cool in the 25th century. Here, so. Here's how I'll bring this whole idea back together for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We reach. We reach. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which actually I think holds up better than Space Rockers. Uh, Well, maybe. Okay. I don't know Space Rockers, and I'm fine with that, honestly. Oh, I think you're fine with not knowing it uh, as well. But but to those who know in the audience, you know that I know. Um, Ken, I'm so glad you mentioned it before. Behold the beauty of the awe-inspiring nebula as we blow up one of our most powerful weapons inside it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Honestly, seeing the nebula just made me want goose. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by the way, dark matter is a thing. We, we think anyway, it hypothetically exists because of the gravitational effects it has on other things in space. Um, but since it's essentially inert and won't interact with anything in the electromagnetic spectrum, we don't have a really good way of observing it firsthand. But I'm sure that we have scientists in the audience who can school us exactly on how that works but it is cool that even here in 1991 when this episode was made that they were talking about this theoretical thing that we're still talking about today mm. that was uh, that was very cool i don't understand why we need scientists though apparently just blow something up near it mm, yeah oh totally I mean, that's how they found it right yeah if you got a photon torpedo put that thing to good use heck if you got an m80 Those are the really heavy duty fireworks, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Toss one of those near there. 
<laughs> open the mm-hmm. airlock really quickly, toss one out, close the airlock really quickly. Yes. And you should be good. <laughs> um, there were some good comedic moments in this episode, I thought. Um, oh, sure. And, oh, sure. And the thing is, a lot of times when they try to do, like, like I think it was last week that we talked about or two weeks ago, it was with the host, um, when, mm-hmm. when yeah, Loxana came in and said, you boys must be hungry. And Data said, mm-hmm. well, the, the absorption of nourishment and the consumption had the, hmm. And it's supposed to be funny, it's not, right? But but right. when he's sitting in 10 forward and he starts to ask Guinan a question, she says, don't look at me, and he does not even miss a beat. He just turns right. away. That actually worked. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I would have looked at that in the script and gone, okay, that's going to work, but it worked. It's mm-hmm. like you said earlier, yeah. Brent Spiner yeah. is just great at those little moments. Yeah. Um, Worf's response to the poltergeist suggestion, mm-hmm. I thought that was also very funny. I mean, just the <laughs> right. captain. Captain. <laughs> it's like, stop being stupid. I mean, basically Which what, uh, I'm, I'm amused because being sort of the scientifically enthusiastic skeptic that I am, we just dismiss the poltergeist theory right away. Mm-hmm. Just get rid of that. Well, <laughs> it's kind of please. here's the thing, though, that's a whole sufficiently advanced technology, whatever thing, right? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah, remember yeah. The, the amazingly uh, scary and, and realistic episode that was Cat's Paw. Mm, oh, yeah. I mean, it was, just, it was just something yeah. we didn't understand. Right, mm-hmm. they weren't mm-hmm. ghosts. They were just, they were. What were they? Prawns in fur coats. Is that yes. what we decided they were? Yes, yes, they were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was one other thing that really could have been a great moment for comedy. I think mm-hmm. um, when 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 Data goes to Jordy to ask advice, and of course Jordy says, "My advice: ask someone else for advice. At least someone who's got more experience at giving advice." Um, okay, it's kind of a cute moment, but what would have been cuter is if we had seen Data going to everybody, and then he goes into Jordy's quarters, looks at him. And just turns around and walks out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was Star Trek not aware of what bad luck Jordy had with women? Do you have to I go? Know. Do you have to go back later and watch the whole thing again to go? Wow, I we know, really kind of screwed him on the whole yeah. <laughs> on, on the whole relationship thing. Looking yes. back, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, uh, other fun little uh, relationship stuff, the the Miles and Keiko scene there in 10 Ford. Um, although I have to mention that, you know, she says something about the, the pile of socks and, and it's, it's sort of a very contrived moment, but whatever. Um, and she talks about grabbing them and throwing them in the cleaning processor. And I thought, are you kidding? If I had a replicator, like you guys have a replicator, new socks every day. <laughs> every day, new socks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder then about their uniforms. Oh, yeah. Like, do yeah, they actually yeah. have to keep their uniforms clean? I mean, is that uniform, like, are you issued that uniform? Or do you get up in the morning and it's like, make me another right. one? <laughs> right. Because that's that's what I would do. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe like, today. Maybe yeah. Maybe I'm feeling a little saucy today, and I will wear the uh, the scant. <laughs> then I, that, that would be my choice. Replicator, whip me up a scant. Remember a few years ago when we didn't have zippers? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm kind of mm-hmm. liking that when it was all one big piece and it hurt my back. Yeah, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. feeling that about that today. Again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and speaking of the replicator, I'm pretty sure that Jenna got that sculpture from the replicator store. Uh, either that or Spencer gifts. Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> it, was, it was probably the most dated thing in this episode. A lot of times mm-hmm. you'll see hair that's totally dated or something like that. That was probably the most dated thing, I would think, in this oh, episode. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Captain Picard, why are you piloting the shuttle? Yes. I realize you're the captain. I realize you got into that position because you're probably good at certain things. <laughs> Shouldn't data have been there? Or, or really or anyone, anyone else? else? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. a hard time buying Picard as the guy who can best pilot the shuttle. I think we talked mm-hmm. about this, and um, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Booby trap. Um, I, I Never think, heard of I it. I think it was in that episode. Your argument then, because he was the one that piloted the ship out of, you know, he bounced it off the one thing and off the other thing and got them out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And your argument then was, hey, why not have one of the people who does this every flipping day do this right. instead right. of the titular best guy on the ship, right? Because unless he's spending a ton of time in simulators, he has got to be out of practice. Now, I know people say it's just like riding a bicycle. I can tell you, the last time I was on a bicycle, uh, yes, I was actually able to propel myself. But when I was like 13 to 16, when I was riding my, you know, 10 speed everywhere, Mm -hmm. I used to ride with no hands. I used to go Mm -hmm. so fast. Never wore a helmet, which was stupid, but, you know, right. it was the it was the 80s. We didn't realize that your head could get hurt by hitting pavement. <laughs> right. I, mean, I, I mean, I was totally in command of a bicycle when I was a kid. The next time I got on one, or last time I got on one, 
I, I was able to stay upright, and that's about the best I could do. So, yes, I could actually stay on the bicycle, mm-hmm. but, yeah, no. If, if, if Picard's not doing this all the time, yeah. hand this off to somebody else, please. Now, you say shouldn't they have sent data. He does have a girlfriend. Uh, oh, so what? <laughs> <laughs> you might, Picard's single. Yeah. Uh, Riker, Riker yeah. of course, has several girlfriends, so you can't send him. No, you no, can send Jordy. No, not at all. Sorry. Hey, hey, you know what they could have done? Uh, they could have, uh, let's see, I, I'll go with a theme here. They could have brought back Wesley and <laughs> put him in the shuttle that gets hit by a deadly anomaly. Eat, eaten by dark matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And they call down to O'Brien. Like, did you get him? No, nope, I'm afraid not. <laughs> right. What are you kidding? You yeah. told me to take a break. <laughs> oh, did we do? And then you? Oh. Oh, oh, too bad. I do kind of like the look that Picard and Riker exchange when Picard comes back onto the bridge after his little adventure in the shuttle, because you could read that look a few ways. You could read it as sort of like, Hey, good job. I'm glad you made it back. Or you could also read it as like, you should not have been there in the first place. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's just a moment or, ah, finally done with the B plot. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Let's move on. Any number of ways you could have done that. Yeah. Mm. A great little uh, classic Trek moment here where the uh, Picard is in the shuttle and he, he's calling out numbers, nav- navigational points for them to follow. And then he just says, hard to starboard. And then you cut back to the crew on the bridge and they all give the lean. Yeah. They, they all give the lean over, even though you're in a spaceship in space and, you know, shouldn't be affected by that. But whatever, whatever. It's great. It's classic yeah. track, like you say. It is. Uh, it I'm is. a little confused, though. So they were they were like going. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the shuttle hit the thing and it got worse and it exploded. But luckily they got the captain out. And so mm-hmm. then Riker's like, OK, gun it. Because the whole reason the captain was someplace else was because there's still dark matter around, right? Yeah, right. But maybe if we go really fast, it'll just cut yeah. through us so quickly, we won't even feel it, I guess. Won't even notice, yeah. yeah. Obviously, yeah, the reason yeah. that they had to do that is because, you know, we're at 41 minutes and we still have to resolve the A plot. <laughs> and so right. it's like, oh, okay, go fast. Okay, good. Right. Oh, wow, that worked. Maybe, maybe we should have tried that like 10 minutes ago. So they, they do that. They make it out. Yeah. And then and everybody on the bridge is like, oh, we made it. Uh, thank goodness. Let's get to Starbase. And then they walk through like decks 12 through 20. And they're like, oh, man, it's just full of people <laughs> cut in half by the floor. <laughs> oh, not, what not a mistake. Cut in half. Uh, joined together, let's say. Jo- <laughs> by the way, Van Mater. Van yeah. Mater. Um, that would be my second favorite cosplay. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ken should not make fun of Jordy's romantic life. Did not the guys decide that the computer is in love with Jordy? Because I am. I mean, she is. I mean, forget that I said anything. Dumb tech guy, kind of a dumb tech thing. This is starting to be a thing. This, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is, I think, third week in a row now. That it feels like this is the place to talk about it because it's not just a quick observation, but at the same time, it's not really part of the show. Okay. So, but here it is anyway. Uh, what would you drink if you could drink anything you wanted at any time? Hmm. Because because he's like he, Data is in Jenna's quarters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, "Can I get you a drink?" And she says, uh, "Callum and Sherry." I don't know what that is, but I might try one. If if like right. if I could just have anything ever, I might try that. Um, which sort of goes back to the discussion that we had about the replicators in Data's day. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about what the value of a gift is when it's like, oh, well, here, this cost me absolutely nothing. I didn't actually have to go anywhere for it. I didn't make it for you. But here, right? Right. Um, right. The foods we eat, the drinks we drink, they're often bound by our experience and our financial wherewithal. And financial wherewithal often binds our experience, Right. So in a world where literally everything is on the menu, I mean, first, mm-hmm. how are more people not obese? And second, <laughs> right. would people still be like, eh, I'll, I'll like a bologna sandwich and a beer because I can't. I mean, she actually says, I'm too tired to even think about what I want. And you're like, really, Jenna? Because that's literally all you have to do. <laughs> you don't even have to think, oh, but then you'd have to go to the store <laughs> you know, or I don't right. have well, the ingredients. It's like, no, I can't even think. 
about what I would want to taste. But I guess if you have that problem where you have so many choices and you're frozen mm. by so many choices, you, you wow. literally, you couldn't even conceive of what to eat because you could have anything. That honestly used to happen to me. I can't believe I mm-hmm. just faulted her for that because when I would go visit my dad in the summertime, mm-hmm. uh, he would always ask me where I wanted to go. And I would always ask him where he wanted to go. But, you know, he was a single dad entertaining his son for a week or two. So he wanted to make me happy. And what would have made right. me most happy is he would have just chosen a place to go because I was afraid of disappointing him. But sure, that yeah, aside, yeah. it got to the point where at like 10 o'clock in the morning, he would start asking me what I might want for dinner. Because it would seriously take me that long because we had all of this city, which was a relatively major city. It wasn't the biggest in the country, but it wasn't the smallest. It wasn't like mm-hmm. he was asking me in New York City, but he wasn't asking me in, you know, Bell Buckle, Tennessee either. That's actually a real price, right. by the way. Um, that is. I've been to Bell Buckle. Have you um, really? Yeah, it, oh, of course I, you I have because you're from I, that yeah. area. Yeah. So, right, I mean, I, I guess if you had like the, like the wealth of everything from which to choose, it might be a little paralyzing. But here's the other thing. Have some of column A, trial of column B. You think you might want something? Have it. And you yeah. never have to have it again. And, you know, you can just put it back in the replicator because I assume that's what happens with the uneaten food. Well, it's sort of like going to the Cheesecake Factory. You know, <laughs> you're just going to be so <laughs> stuck. You're like, this thing is 30 pages long. Yeah, and the true. computer on the Enterprise is like, I've got 100 more of those where that came from. That's true. All 30 pages long. Um, so, but, but see, what I would do is I, I would go ahead and order everything from column A and column B. I would, uh, I would try it all. And then apparently you can just tell maybe the transporter, like, hey, get all that food that I just gorged on out of my stomach. Oh, because, yeah. yeah. That's gross. <laughs> well, yeah, you just beam yeah. off the ship and beam back on, but have it like replicate. Mm-hmm. The only problem is if it's working based on your previous pattern buffer, mm-hmm. you're, hung- you're hungry again. Oh, that's no good. Yeah. yeah. And you may yeah, not remember not having all. eaten either. All right. Mm-hmm. So on to more serious stuff. Okay. Are the B plot and the A plot the same plot? It's interesting to me that you say that they didn't want to do the B plot because my assumption was that they were, in fact, the same story. Uh, The mysteries Mm. of the Dark Nebula are unknown to the crew, just as the mysteries of romance are unknown to Data. Uh, Both Mm. of them go ahead and just plow through it anyway. Uh, Things get troublesome. Both of them back out of it. And next week, it will be as if none of this ever happened ever. (laughs) I mean, my assumption was, you know, that everything that happened was telling the same story. Guinan even asking Data to test the drink that she's making is is along the same lines in a way. She's treating Data like a real live boy. Right. And, and that's great for Data on some level. I do have to question Guinan doing that. Uh, but when the question, though, is uh, too sweet, I mean, she is mm-hmm. asking him for a response that he is in no way able to give. Mm-hmm. See also almost everything. Well, not everything, actually. Most of what Jenna wants, she gets from the Data relationship. It turns mm-hmm. out, though, there's there's one ingredient that's missing. I don't know if we'll get to that or not, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. So, and so I mean, it's weird to me that you say, I mean, my assumption was, I mean, we've used the term, we've talked about it being a dumb show before, how one plot is just a reflection of the other plot. Mm-hmm. And I honestly thought that's what the B plot was in this. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I, I think that there is a, uh, there is a poetic parallel to be made there for sure okay um but i i think from the writer's perspective and i can't put words in their mouths but feeling maybe bogged down by the sciencey techno babble of it which is certainly not the worst techno babble that they've ever had and at least dark matter is a thing and a nebula is a thing um so they could at least have have a bit of that in there but maybe i'll come back to this in our wrap-up of the show because to me it's more about the pacing of the show, what what happens here? That there's a lot of jumping back and forth. In my recap, I didn't even mention the moment that um, Doctor Crusher is walking through sick bay and knocks into a uh, well. She doesn't knock into it. She just notices that a thing has fallen off of a desk and, and hit the ground. That happens really early in the episode, and I think that's the only moment of Doctor Crusher we get in the entire thing. She has literally nothing else to do other than go, hey, that thing is on the floor and it shouldn't be on the floor. And it's moments like that that serve the B-plot that just pull you out of the A-plot. I would have rather given up a scene like that or a couple of scenes like that and come back to what was really the A-plot. So I, I, I can see their frustration there, but I like the idea that, sure, in this, in this poetic sense, the, the unknown for data is sort of the same unknown that they're facing on the ship. I, I, I like that. I'll, I'll give you that one. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you yeah. mentioned the thing about Dr. Crusher. I was going to make a joke earlier that she wasn't even in this episode. So, yeah, right. that's a very small... I mm-hmm. totally forgot that she that she was there, and I watched it a few times for this week's presentation. It's, it's really it's like a scene out of contractual obligation. Ah, there you go. You know? Yeah. And, and that's not to slight anybody. It's certainly not to slight Gates. She's terrific. But it's sort of like, oh, well, she's guaranteed to be in these episodes, so we have to put her in this episode here. Something is on the ground, and she picks it up. There you go. <laughs> you know? Um so let's talk a little bit about Data and his um, his journey here. Um, I, I asked myself what's the difference in Data writing a subroutine for himself that causes Jenna to fall more in love with him. Uh, if he would be capable of such a thing, he sort of failed at it in some respect. Uh, but what would the difference in that be from, say, the difference in the binars writing a holodeck program that caused Riker to fall in love with it? You know, Riker is certainly the only person on board who should be able to truly understand what's happening in this relationship because uh, he's been there. He's he's been there with the the full on goo goo eyes for an artificial intelligence Hmm. or a manufactured intelligence, shall we say? Yeah, except again, we've we've sort of done the whole. I mean, she wasn't just a program that was written for him. She was also a program that was being guided. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and and data, for that matter, has the ability to guide his programming. It's interesting. I, I didn't mention this, that in the research notes, um, they actually suggested that the writers stay away from words like writing a program or writing a subroutine because they were trying to make the argument that data's growth is simply his neural net making new connections, just like a brain would. So they wanted to sort of push along this idea that he is he is developing. He's not just sitting down and creating something out of whole cloth. Hmm. So maybe if they had left out that idea of him writing uh, a program, then maybe our feelings about it would have been a little bit different. Um, I did think it was interesting that Data is the one who said to Jenna, with regard to romantic relationships, there is no real me. Because it's sort of an existential problem for Data here. You know, Data Data knows that he exists. We already established that in the measure of a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but he's making this separation. He's making this separation and saying that, well, I'm aware that I exist. I'm aware of my place in space and I'm aware of other people. But yeah, this part of the thing is is just not going to happen because it's not real and it can't ever be real. So I, I sort of wanted them to follow up on that more. Uh, we we won't get there in Star Trek that I know of, but I wanted them to follow up more on this idea that Data has a psychological split going on where he's saying at least for that part of his life, that's something else. That isn't something that he is able to internalize and make part of himself. I thought it was a really curious line. Yeah, it's another one of those things, though, where it only happens when it happens, right? It's like mm-hmm. that whole thing mm-hmm. where you know uh, you you never find a you never find a significant other when you're looking for one. It's mm-hmm. always when mm-hmm. you're not that that happens. Because I mean, he yeah. was in love. Well, we don't know that he was in love with Tasha, but he certainly had a certain affinity for Tasha. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He way had a crush on Tasha's sister, though. Oh yeah, I mean, he was yeah. headed there, and I mean, to the point that he felt real loss when she was no longer. I mean, he felt betrayed, and he felt he felt a real loss when she wasn't there, same as he had with Tasha. And he right. seems to acknowledge that he has feelings for Jenna at the beginning. What does he say, that he looks forward to the time that they spend together? Yeah. Is that not, yeah. I mean, I'm not, and this is not just the same thing that we always do of does Data have emotions or does he not, but is that not a statement of emotion at that point? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not saying, oh, I anticipate bumping into her, just in the same way that I anticipate bumping into the captain when I'm on the bridge, or I anticipate people going to eat when they're hungry. I mean, he's actually saying, I mean, he's he's stating a preference for her company. Well, and what's great about this is it sort of gets back to this whole fundamental question that we have about data. And I know that we have certain listeners who are sick of hearing it, but but this is what's fascinating about this episode. Is it that Data does not have emotions, or is it that Data is unaware and unable to express and explain and sort of grapple with the emotional programming he's got? Or yeah, well, Okay, yes. Or is it also maybe that Data is one of the healthiest people on the ship, and mm. everybody else is looking for something that is never going to fully satisfy anyway? Mm. I mean, she's, yeah. she is looking for him to make her happy. 
Yeah. She is not going to be happy if she's not in a relationship, it would seem. And I'm not faulting her for that because there are guys who are the same way. I'm not saying, oh, yes, it's one of those uh, woman needs a man, whatever, because I don't think it's that. I think I think this particular person seems to have it in her head that she's not going to be fine on her own in a mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, and that's that I, I there are many people out there like that. I've known people like that. I've been like that from time to time. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's weird to me because she says, I want somebody who's attentive. I want somebody who understands me, all of those things. And she gets all of those things with data. And, you know, what if they had like stayed a couple forever at that point? Because obviously his needs are being met. Sure. And, and her need is what she needs to be the center of his universe in a way she needs to be. What, what did she say? I, I, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, I can't reach you. Not really. Right. What does that mean? Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what what does that mean exactly? And I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying you know to heck with love or anything like that. I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't. Sure, I mean, sure. it, it feels like they're both getting their needs met, except it turns out what she needs is something that she can't actually put her finger on. She can't actually understand what that thing is, and so then she knows that this is not that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no, sorry. I know I, it sounds like I'm going around and around in circles. I apologize. No, no, no. But, I mean, but, but, but I think this, you know, from the beginning, I, I think somebody like Dana Choi needed to say to Jenna, you know what? You need some time by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just just don't throw yourself back there into the dating pool. But you know what? I've had that conversation with a lot of people and they never listen. <laughs> so <laughs> they just never listen. They just never listen. Yeah. Um, but there's this interesting thing about data here that I, I was trying to work out in my head if it does or doesn't add up and that's data's sort of inability to be himself like i said he he has this problem sort of reconciling that there is no real me when it comes to romantic relationships um and i thought maybe there's something tragic but also something relatable about this in the beginning in ten forward um after the concert they're just hanging out Data's doing great. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's being the friend who is reassuring and saying the right things when she is doubting herself. Um, and, and when they're with the O'Briens, that is the data that Jenna falls in love with. And I, I, he even shares that great wink with the O'Briens, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it's a calculated, programmed thing. But I think you and I could also argue that. Whenever we do that kind of thing as human beings, we're putting the punchline that we learned, that we learned gets a reaction on a moment. Right. We're, we're, we're sealing that, that interaction with the right punctuation. When he starts to try on personalities, that's when he ruins it. So there's a lesson there to be oneself that real relationships can't be built on, on a lie or built on a character that, that is a lie. So I wondered, could Data not turn off those parts of the character and go back to who he was mm-hmm. when Jenna started to fall in love with him? He, he's different when he's talking to, say, Captain Picard, when he's at work and he's sitting in front of the, the console on the bridge. That's a different interaction. It's a different voice. It's a different demeanor and a different presence that Data has than when he's talking to his friends alone. He knows how to adapt, or at the very least, he knows how to turn on the right program. But again, he's a manufactured version of doing what we do, which is turning on the right program when we're in different company. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, he's, he's a manufactured version, but so are we. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> which I know is exactly what exactly. you're saying, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Just go ahead and hammer, hammer that yeah. part home. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm so glad for the for the sake of the episode, of course, or else it wouldn't be an episode that he goes through with this experiment. He goes through with this, and and so does Jenna. Um, one of my favorite quotes that is often repeated on Dan Savage's Savage Love podcast is, "Every relationship will fail until one doesn't." So I'm glad in that respect that Data went for it. And I'm glad he got good advice from the people around him. Um, Maybe that's another lesson kind of within this is listen to your friends. But maybe after you've listened to your friends, do what you think is right. Hmm. Because he does get uh, not necessarily conflicting advice, but, but different aspects of advice. And I think maybe Troy was the most correct and the most sensitive 
because she knows better than say Riker <laughs> when it when it came to any of this. You know, what we haven't talked about in a long time though. There was the whole What's that? Uh, the the different personalities that went into Data's decision. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. uh, Troy definitely did give uh, uh, probably the most nuanced advice. But mm-hmm. Worf's advice was also great, and it was very illustrative for Data. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the part where he says, uh, we don't woo, we conquer. Right. But, but right. the part where he says, by the way, <laughs> I take care of her, and believe me, if you hurt her, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. I mean, he, the, the protectiveness uh, for her, because you're right, most people are only concerned with, you know, what's Data going to get out of this, or what's Data going to put into it. I mean, De- uh, Deanna does say, hey, this is a real person here, so... Go carefully. But, yeah. but, you know, Warp says, like, well. by the way, really go carefully mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I will not be happy if uh, if anything goes poorly for her, which was uh, yeah. which was interesting. It's sort of like we used to talk about how each member of the of the crew was a different facet of maybe one personality. And we got right. we got in getting all of those different answers. Uh, we got uh, we got sort of uh, different looks at the very same situation in, in a mm-hmm. very in a very clear way. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Con and Spock, die in a nebula. Jenna loses in love in a nebula. Captain Picard nearly dies in a nebula. The message in this episode is obvious. Stay the heck away from nebulas. In theory, we have reached the end of the episode, in theory. And we should have some things to talk about here, in theory. Like messages, morals, and meanings in the episode, and whether or not the episode holds up, Mr. John Champion, a.k.a. Dr. Love, <laughs> does the episode, in theory, hold up as far as you're concerned? In theory. Um, I, I, I think for the most part, but this is one of those where it depends on what element you're saying holds up or doesn't hold up. So here's the thing. There are extraneous scenes, like I mentioned before, uh, the, the bit with Dr. Crosher. And those extraneous scenes are there because of the B plot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes the pacing a bit uneven. Um, just from a production standpoint, if they had really committed to the A plot and maybe given it another pass, I think this would have been one of the most remarkable episodes of Star Trek out there. The idea of exploring so much more about this potential emotional life of Data, or or at least how he will learn to grapple with human emotions. Um, so it's a little bit of a miss when it comes to that. But when you come around to the other side and you say, okay, well, given what they had, given the script that they had and the actors that they had, did they really make the most out of this? And um, are, are the scenes that work really worth exploring? And, and does that part of it hold up? I, I would say yes. There's something kind of strange. that You, you mentioned some of the funny bits. Um, there's something a little bit strange about data. Not just the moment where he's turning on this other kind of fake personality, but the very first time he comes over to Jenna's quarters and he adjusts the lighting and then he sticks out his arm mm-hmm. in this very robotic way to sit on the couch with her. And I'm of two minds about that. Uh, one, it is Data trying to learn and express what a romantic relationship looks and feels like. But it also seemed out of character even for Data. Yeah. Because Data is somebody who we have seen work and sort of pass himself off as almost human so many other times that this just didn't seem right. So it seemed like a moment that either the actor or the director or whomever decided will play this for physical comedy. And it was little moments like that that I thought, okay, that's really inspired. That's really funny. But it also takes me out of what I know about Data. And how I've seen data act before. So, you know, I think that's kind of a toss up. Does something like that really help or hurt the episode? Is it a moment that we can kind of enjoy in the moment? But then you take a step back and say, hmm, that sort of goes against what I know of data. Um, But I think there are some great dramatic moments here. Uh, Maybe part of what's so heartbreaking at the end of the story is a couple of things, you know, like you mentioned, how awful 
to have to work with a former boyfriend or girlfriend anyway. Mm-hmm. So for Jenna, this is going to be really tough. And it's made even more tough because there's no satisfaction for Jenna that Data has even an inkling of the same feeling of heartbreak. Yeah. There is no company for that misery, (laughs) you know, Um, at least not from the person who went through it with her. She'll have to go to Troy or she'll have to go to somebody else. And and she's really she's really going to be at it on her own. And then, man, the idea that data just straight up deleted her program. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I thought that his handling of Kivas Fajo was cold. Yeah. Man, this is really cold. <laughs> it really hurts because she's almost in tears at that moment. And to see what he turns that into. Wow. So um, as it is, this has great dramatic moments, but it's also a nice light data episode with really interesting ideas about love and relationships. Um, We got a tweet from Scott that I thought was really great. He said, I finally watched the episode before the podcast in theory, did nothing for me at 14. Absolutely adored it at 39. Hmm. And you know what? Uh, Maybe I can see that too, that um, it, it takes maybe going through a relationship or two um, to, to sort of get the idea of what heartbreak means for this other character. Um, I, you know, I really have two minds about that. I, I want to say, and I think finally I will say that this does hold up as a production and it holds up as a Star Trek story and it holds up because there are great character moments, but there are things in it that, that sort of make me cringe. Um, what about you, sir? Uh it is not unusual for me to not remember an episode, having watched mm-hmm. them 20-something years ago. Mm-hmm. Initially, anyway. I mean, there are plenty that I've seen uh, again since. Although, I will tell you, this is one that I would have avoided. Um, Act 1 has always made me completely uncomfortable, to the point that I remember this mm-hmm. episode. I remember mm-hmm. Act 1 in this episode. It just has always made me the whole, you know, where she's saying, oh, Data was so funny. Well, no, he wasn't. You're projecting. And, mm-hmm. and and she does yeah. such a great job of selling that, and it's so well written that I just I, I I seriously I actually stopped for the first viewing for this episode for of Mission mm-hmm. Log, I actually had to stop it and go do something else. It's always <laughs> made me incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, wow! But I do remember it, so maybe that's a selling point. I hate the lessons that she is teaching Data here. Which are uh, you know, I know I said one thing, but I meant another. Get used to that, mm-hmm. right? That's that kind of mm-hmm. thing has always made me mental. I dislike when yeah. someone tells me something when they actually mean something else, and this is true in a professional relationship, in a romantic relationship, and a we're pals hanging out relationship. I hate that, and I also dislike when I say something and people disregard it, either assuming that I meant something else or that they know best. Uh, mm. One of the greatest things in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is when uh, Arthur pushes the infinite improbability drive and he saves everybody. And Zaphod comes over to him and says, did you do that, monkey man? That was really great thinking. And Arthur says, oh, it was nothing. And Zaphod says, oh, well, forget it then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's it. And yeah. Arthur is actually very upset because he said it was nothing, but what, it was, what he really wanted was more praise. And that is, I mean, what Jenna wants, I mean, despite the fact that she says, oh, go back to your painting, you know, to somebody who is a very literal and in, in, in commands, he starts to go back to his painting. And she's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Well, actually, he mm-hmm. does. You just said completely opposite what you wanted. Right. Um, that said, she is teaching him how to deal with humans. So maybe, mm. maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> good. I don't know. The direction's a little wooden. Which yeah. is weird. I mean, Brent Spiner, you're right. He almost couldn't help but do well with Brent Spiner because Brent Spiner it does great at these little character moments. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff that I was kind of like, huh, that's, that's weird. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. like, it's like he had the hardest time directing himself, it seemed, because when he makes the impassioned case for why he's the one to, uh, to fly the shuttle. Sure. It, well, it wasn't really actually that impassioned. Now, you can also blame the writers because all he said was, my ship, I'm going to do it. I mean, which right. is a very Captain Kirk way to be, honestly. Yeah, production-wise, it holds up fine. It's, I don't know. We're not really saying much, it doesn't seem to be. And the lessons that Data is learning are not lessons that I wish he was learning. I kind of almost wish that that Jenna was learning something more in this episode, in a way. And I would reverse that, too, if it was a guy and it was a female android, or if it was a guy and, and just an emotionally unavailable uh, human. 
Yeah. Um, it feels like it feels like the person learning here is not the one who necessarily should. And I'm, I'm sort of envious that in the end of it, he can just go ahead and erase it all. Yeah, well, uh, that's really unfortunate because it, it, it seems like, yeah, there, there was an opportunity for something about relationships. But it, it, because of the, the way this show works, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about it with The Offspring, with Lal, that um, here is a character that is such a great, deep, complex idea of a character. But ultimately, that character is there to serve one of the stars of the show. Mm-hmm. So the guest star character has to go away. Right. <laughs> and everything that guest star character does has to affect one of the stars who will maintain their position on the show. So in that case, the, the reality of production here is that Jenna is there to serve the data character. When, you know, data is the guy sitting in a room in the dark alone who has just switched off a program. And, and it feels cold and creepy in sort of a Twilight Zone way. But the reality is, you know, you and I both are very concerned about Jenna. <laughs> We're very concerned yeah. about her well-being. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it goes back to that question of does this hold up or not? Well, as a little more complex exploration of data, yes. As some fun with data, yes. As, as For the light romantic moments, yes. But maybe there's something else here that the story is missing that, like I said, it, had it gone back for another pass, may, maybe had we dropped a couple of the scenes that were just things falling apart in the Enterprise, we could have squeezed in a little more nuance about what was going on. Hmm. You know, maybe that's the, 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 the shortcoming here. And as far as the, the acting stuff that we're talking about, I, I think that... Um, I think there's probably no doubt that in many cases, great actors can also make great directors. Mm -hmm. And maybe what was happening here is that Patrick Stewart is a man of many, many talents, but he's also thrown into a position with a very strong actor that he has a very good working relationship with anyway. Mm. And when you have that and, and it's sort of like, let's come up with a bit and here's data sticking his arm out and that gets a laugh. Well, it gets that laugh, but does it really work to serve anything about the overall theme of the story here? See, that's so interesting to me because I thought about saying last segment, this this is this episode in a way is like a page out of a coloring book. Mm-hmm. And and Data sitting there and very robotically putting his arm out is the big black line that defines the thing that you're coloring inside. Right. Mm-hmm. As sort of what happens with the with the dark matter as well. I mean, if we're going to say that the B plot is a is a mirror of the A plot and we can only say that poetically because apparently that was not the case at all. But I mean, that is another example of those lines that are defining where we are. We're going into this thing and it looks beautiful when we start and then we get inside and things are kind of weird, but it's still kind of interesting. And then as we're headed back out of it, it's actually very destructive or can be. And you have to be really careful. I mean, it feels like mm-hmm. it, like even even the robotic nature of data was a was an illustration of 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 what's going on with data. I mean, she's literally dating a robot. I mean, mm-hmm. and you're right. Mm-hmm. The character should be able to do better. We've seen data standing there with his with his knee up on on a console before the way right. Right. Does. right. We've seen yeah. him act more human. Uh, but we need to really hammer home the part that you know, what's going on here is wrong, not because yeah. it's person and machine. But because he's emotionally unavailable and she's looking to be attached. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. What about, well, uh, look, what about actual messages, though? Are there intended messages, do you think, or any that you have found and want to pick out? Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, it, there's something about the, the tragedy of what uh, Jenna says. Sometimes people blindly make the same mistake again and again. Mm-hmm. It's one thing for people to give advice to others, particularly when it comes to their personal and romantic relationships. And I think we know that 99% of the time people don't or can't objectively listen to that advice and say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to not fall in love with this wrong person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know. Um, maybe that's just something about human nature. Maybe that's just something about our romantic brains taking over our logical, rational brains uh, at at certain points in our lives. Um, So it's not necessarily a message in that respect, but it is sort of uh, an often repeated 
condition of how we are as human beings when it comes to our romantic relationships. Um, maybe there's also a lesson here about rebound relationships. They're tough. <laughs> They're really tough, no matter what. Yes. Um, not not fishing in the company pond, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the whole work relationship thing, although, again, they do. Well, they are on a ship of a thousand people, though. She could maybe try to fall in love with somebody who she doesn't have to work across a torpedo every day. I still think Riker is just waiting in the wings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was like, oh, hey, Data, yeah, go ahead, because you'll, you'll mess this up in a week. <laughs> he, he may have been two before Jeff, though. We really don't know. Right, that's true. That's, that's, a, that's true. a possibility, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I had, uh, I, 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 I'm kind of embarrassed. I had know thyself as a possible message here, but I can't tell you why. Maybe it's just, mm. I always think that's a good idea. I know there was a reason <laughs> in this Sure, episode. just drop it in. in particular, yeah, you know, because if you can't yeah. figure out what to say about Star Trek, say something about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's, uh, that's, that's the rule. I, I'm still stuck on the fact that I, I, I was thinking maybe of uh, what you had talked about before with Lars and the real girl, mm. how he builds a whole, you know, relationship with this uh, replicated yeah. person. What's the best right. way to say it? Right. And I mean, she's kind of doing that as well. And yet what I mean, what's interesting is she does get everything from data that she says she wants. Right. That's this must be why I had know thyself in here. She gets what she thinks she wants out of this, but then she gets in the middle of it and realizes, oh, it turns out this is not exactly what I want. The thing that I'm worried about then is, okay, what is exactly you do want? Because that actually is giving you everything that you thought you wanted, except you want somebody who's also going to feel emotional. Basically, she wants to be able to wreck a person or make them happy, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, she, hey, she needs, I, she needs, to, be able, she needs to be able to, to, to completely you know, change their emotional core. Yeah. Even though he's going along, like he's, he's doing everything that he needs to do to keep himself happy. And she is actually made happy by many of his actions as well. But if there's no chance that he's going to end up heartbroken or, you know, exceedingly happy, uh, then there's then there's no point in this. But Mm. you would think that that would be something that she might have known, would have known, could have known going in. Of course, she should actually spend some time with Deanna and maybe talking about her father or what it is that makes her so attracted to emotionally unavailable men. Well, we've got a whole week before next uh, next episode of Star Trek. Hopefully, that's a good seven days that Jenna can just be in therapy every day with Deanna to try to work this out. Because I think <laughs> she needs it. I really do think she needs it. Is that on the extended cut, do you think? there? Yeah, yeah. Sessions? And I'm also going to say that, you know, the best of I, Jenna, Jenna needs to find Jenna. Oh, you know? nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Because no one can make Jenna happy except Jenna. Except for Jenna. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at Roddenberry.com. There's a lot going on between the Roddenberry Foundation, of course, original graphic novels, products, and convention appearances. All of that can be found at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Redemption. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. No M-class planets were harmed in the making of this episode. In theory... And transmission.